If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Yesterday I had the uh, privilege of teaching at a men's retreat, and the topic I was given to teach on was family discipleship. So teaching your kids, loving your kids, discipling your kids. Uh, Today we come to a text where we see Abraham sacrificing his kid. It was really important I didn't mix up my texts this weekend. (laughs) All right, let's read. Starting in verse 1, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac the son. And he took his hand, in his hand the fire and the knife, so both of them went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they had come to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, This is one of those stories that you come to in the book of Genesis, and it should shock you. Uh, This text should blow us away every single time we hear it. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. Um, When I I was preparing the sermon, I saw a couple of difficulties that could prevent us from really grasping the gravity of uh, the truth that we find here. Um, First is familiarity. So if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you know this story, right? We, we've heard this story before. This is a very common story. We're very familiar with this story. So the weight of the command of God can be easily lost. We glance over the passage, maybe in our quiet time, we see God uh, told Abraham to sacrifice his son, and then yada, 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 everything is okay in the end. We're familiar with it. When we see the command, we already know the end from the beginning, Familiarity with the story or or jumping to the end of the story softens the plot and we end up missing the main point. Abraham's faith is displayed in his obedience to God's command. The second difficulty we could see is is we like to soften God's words. Um, Well, well, after all, he never really intended for Abraham to sacrifice his son, right? He he never intended that. He told Abraham that, but that wasn't his intention. And, And while this is true, If we're reading the story while simultaneously apologizing for God's words, we miss the gravity of the command. We we do this to similar passages in the New Testament. When Jesus tells us that 
we must hate our own father and mother and wife and children in order to follow him, we often try to immediately soften the word hate. We, instead, of, instead of digging into the text to find out what it really means, we immediately say, well, he didn't really mean hate. And, and I think that we think it makes the teaching more palatable, but, but here we, we see something similar. God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son, to kill his son. So regardless of what God had intended or what God knew would happen, he delivered this message to Abraham, and it was jarring. If we try and jump behind the curtain and understand God's secret will, we miss the main point. Abraham's faith is displayed in his obedience to God's commands. So, so rather than falling into the ditch of familiarity or soft-pedaling the words of God, let's look at the text in the order that God gives it to us and not try and decipher the secret plan of God, but rather place ourselves in Abraham's, Abraham's shoes. So if, if we do that, the text should shock us, and it should teach us something about the relationship between faith and works. The first thing we see in our passage, first 10 verses, is Abraham's faith-fueled obedience. We see Abraham's faith-fueled obedience. Immediately we see that God comes to Abraham so that he might test his faith. It is through this test, through this required action based on faith, that we learn the nature of true faith and necessary actions that always accompany our profession of faith. Um, there's a couple of aspects to this. So, so first we see Abraham's faith preceded his obedience. Abraham's faith preceded his obedience. Abraham had already believed in God years before, believed in God's promises. Years before um, Isaac was born, God had uh, promised Abraham he would make a great nation of him. If we look back to Genesis 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. God made a promise to Abraham and he believed him. How do we know he believed him? Well, God said go, and Abraham went. He had faith, and this faith was displayed by his actions that followed. We, we get further clarification in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. So look again to the first verse of Genesis 22. It says, After these things God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Abraham was already a servant of God before God came to test him. He answered God by faith. This faith was something that was already present in Abraham's heart. God didn't come to check to see if he had faith. God came to uh, test his faith, to exercise Abraham's faith a faith that he already, already possessed. This was true for Abraham in the Old Testament. This was true for the Old Testament saints. And this is no less true today. We have faith in God's promises. We look to the gospel and we believe. When we are broken before God, when we cry out to him in repentance and trust him with our whole lives, we are counted 
as righteous before we do anything. There is no good work that must be done first in order for us to be uh, made right with God. If there were, it wouldn't be God saving us. It would be us contributing in some way to our own salvation. There is nothing that we bring to the table. There is nothing that we do. There is nothing required of us. We repent of our sin. We trust in our Lord. And we receive righteousness that is granted to us by faith. Faith is first. And this faith fuels our obedience. It's never the other way around. This leads to the second thing we see in the first ten verses. Abraham's faith produced his response. Abraham's faith produced his response. God approaches Abraham and he places a high, hard call on him. Uh, Look at the language. It says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Offer him as a burnt offering. There's a a couple of important things to note here. Um, Abraham's son, Isaac, was his long-awaited son. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that he would have offspring, that he would make of him a great nation. And in his old age, he finally has Isaac, the son of promise. Abraham had this innate desire, this hunger for this promise to come true. In fact, this desire to see this promise fulfilled had caused idolatry in his heart and had caused heartache in his family. Abraham, as we see earlier in Genesis, had sinfully tried to help God out. Their desire for a child was so strong that he fathered another child uh, by the name of Ishmael by Sarah's servant, Hagar. Ishmael was not the son of promise. This was not the method that God had prescribed to Abraham. Abraham's heart wished so badly for this that it became an idol in his life. Instead of Trusting God and his promises, he tried to accomplish this in his own power. But in God's abundant mercy and God's great power, in their old age, they bore the son of promise in Isaac. Finally, at long last, Abraham and Sarah had lived to see the promise of God fulfilled. And and notice how God describes Isaac, your only son, whom you love. I heard um, a pastor last weekend uh, talk about this a little bit, and He said, it's interesting, when you read through this, we don't see them dwelling on uh, what's going on inside of Abraham when he receives the command. We don't see uh, them talking about him uh, weeping or crying or the heartache. And he hypothesized the reason we don't see that in here is because you don't need to see that in here. We We have this that says Abraham loved him. If you have children, you know exactly what this means. The moment the doctor places the beautiful newborn baby in your arms, everything else fades into the background. You have an unconditional love for this baby. You would do anything for it. I remember holding my daughter for the first time. Uh, this is my girl. This, this is an <laughs> undescribable feeling, right? So um, there, there is an awesome picture that we have of me holding Allison for the first time. And the doctor took my camera, and he stepped back, and he got behind me. So you can see me and Allison. Um, but the best part is there was a window, and you can see 
our entire family. So grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, they are all standing there, and I'm holding this baby, and uh, the expressions on their faces was priceless. And my absolute favorite part of the expressions is my mother-in-law. You could see the excitement on her face. You could see immediately there was a connection there. There was a love and excitement for this baby. Uh, If there's ever any doubt that uh, she was excited for a grandchild, that picture erases everything. It's it's beautiful. It was was the best day of my life. And um, as a parent, this love is just magnificent. Um, Now imagine God telling you that this young life is no longer yours. And what's worse, you are the one who must sacrifice this child to him. You are the one that has to look the little one in the eyes and plunge the knife into their chest. There is no need to describe the pain and anguish that is going on inside of you. This is the same thing that was happening for Abraham. We know exactly what he must have been feeling without any words needing to describe it any further. Abraham's faith was not nominal. He did not just mentally ascend to God and his promises. His faith was shown to be genuine faith because of his response to God. Verse 3 says, Abraham rose early. Abraham rose early and he went. There was no hesitation There was no sinful rebellion, but simply obedience by faith. He trusted in the promise of God that he was good and that he was merciful. The author of Hebrews expounds on this later. He says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead. Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain, not thinking that God would stop him at the last minute, but thinking that he would actually have to go through the brutal task. But he took his son up there with the faith in God's promise that even if he must do this, God would raise him from the dead. God would be faithful to his promises. Abraham's works validated the faith that he claimed to have. Abraham's faith in God and his confidence in the promise led him to a righteous response. No longer was Abraham idolizing his offspring. No longer was he sinfully trying to circumvent God's plan. There was nothing but faithful obedience. True saving faith always produces this type of response. There's no such thing as Nominal Christianity. Either we have true faith in our God, and that is shown through our actions, or we don't have any faith at all. Intellectual agreement with the facts of Jesus does not make somebody a Christian. Jesus often calls us to do things that don't make sense to the world. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's crazy. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. It it doesn't make sense to the world. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus does not call us to a life marked by ease and comfort. 
to the world, we are often going to look foolish. Nevertheless, this is, this is our calling as disciples. What is God calling you to? What are the idols in your life that are getting in the way of this? We, we see on the pages of Scripture that we cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus and love our sin in this world. We cannot be a Christian and love anything or anyone more than we love our good and glorious Creator. Abraham had struggled in this idolatry in the past. But now by his actions, he is showing that he has true saving faith in the true and living God. Abraham's faith is displayed in his obedience to God's command. We pick the story back up, starting again in verse 9. It says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The second thing we see in our passage today is God's faithful provision. God's faithful provision. Abraham is going through with the instructions just as he received them. He trusts that God is good and that God will keep his promise to him. That Isaac will be spared somehow, some way. And and banking his hope on Isaac's resurrection, he faithfully raises the knife. But God graciously intervenes. We see God's gracious intervention. Of this event, uh, John Calvin writes, The inward temptation had been already overcome when Abraham intrepidly raised his hand to slay his son. And it was by the special grace of God that he obtained so signal a victory. But now Moses subjoins that suddenly, beyond all hope, his sorrow was changed to joy. Abraham raised his knife to kill his son, but God... These two precious words of God's intervention. In Ephesians, we hear it say, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love of which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. In Romans, we read, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for, perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. In our passage here, it says, but the angel of the Lord. In this context, um, just as in Genesis 16, this is God himself speaking to Abraham. Abraham raises the knife in accordance with God's word, but God stops him and prevents him from completing this task. It's this intervention that we see the gracious, loving hand of God on his servant. Our God is a good God. He is a personal God. He's a caring God who has love for his children. Abraham displayed his faith in action. 
This is required of us all. But God displayed his grace and mercy, and this is not something that is required of him. He does it anyway. He lavishes this on his children whom he loves. This is, this is what we long for. Is it not God's intervention? We are praying for our lost friends and loved ones who don't know Christ by faith. We are praying for God's gracious intervention. We pray that God would prevent the knife from hurtling toward their chest. We pray that they would turn to him by faith. We know that if they die today, they will spend an eternity in a real place called hell. We love them. We plead with God for a gracious intervention. We plead with God to change their hearts and to draw them close to him. This is, this is the very thing that we pray for. God is not under ob- any obligation to do this, but God, being rich in mercy, makes sinners to, alive together in Christ. Are you, are, you, are you praying for this with urgency? Are, are you praying for this with the weight of eternity on your mind? God is a God who graciously intervenes. Does your, does your prayer life bear out that truth? Uh, t- to my shame, sadly, this is often not the case. I can go days and weeks without praying for God's intervention. May this not be said of our church. We seek to bring the truth to those lost around us, and we know God is the one who changes hearts and minds. We pray for God's intervention. We see God's intervention as Abraham raises the knife. This intervention is possible only because God provides a merciful substitute. We see God's merciful substitute. God not only stops Abraham from slaughtering his son, but he provides a substitute in his place. Abraham is given a ram that takes the place of his son. This is offered to God in Isaac's place, a perfect substitute. It's here where we see the story come into focus. We see, looking at it from this side of the cross, it becomes clear that we're looking at an event that is portraying a much bigger story. Something is being foreshadowed here that uh, we can connect the dots. We see the father Abraham offering up his only son Isaac in accordance with God's will. Likewise, we see God the father who would offer up Jesus, his one and only son as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. We see Isaac bearing the wood as he makes his way to the altar to be sacrificed. We see Jesus bearing the cross as he makes his way to Golgotha to be the sacrifice for us all. We see Abraham obeying God through heartache and sorrow, even as Christ obeyed God through heartache and sorrow to the bitter end. Whereas Abraham is stopped and there's a substitutionary ram given in Isaac's place, there is no substitute for the death of God's son. Jesus Christ is, in fact, the substitute. He is the lamb that is the one who dies for the sins of you and for me. In God's mercy and grace, he provided a substitute for Abraham in the moment of his greatest need. In the face of our greatest need, in God's mercy and grace, he provides a substitute for us, Abraham's greater son, Jesus This son of promise has placed himself on the altar for us. Abraham's faith was displayed in his obedience with God's command, and God's mercy was displayed in his substitutionary sacrifice. This sacrifice leads to the last thing that we see in our our passage. It is our faith producing promise. 
our faith producing promise. Through this faith-fueled obedience to God's word, Abraham has passed the test. His faith has been tried and it's been found worthy. Again, God restates his promise to Abraham. Verses 15 through 18, we, we see Abraham's covenant renewed. Abraham's covenant is renewed. Starting in verse 15, it says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess, possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. God restates his covenant with Abraham that we found already in Genesis 12, Genesis 15. Abraham has now already received the son of promise in Isaac. And here, God promises to continue to bless Abraham with so much more. He will multiply his offspring. And through him, a whole nation will spring forth. And notice he says that he will receive this blessing because you have obeyed my voice. Uh, this, this can get a little tricky because it can appear that God is rewarding Abraham for his work of obedience. But did not God already promise these things to Abraham in Genesis 12 unconditionally? A promise that he received by faith? Abraham had already received this by faith. What is this connection then to faith and his obedience? We, we see that faith and obedience are always intertwined. There, there is never true faith that does not result in obedience. Uh, Martin Luther famously quoted, We are saved by faith alone, but that faith that saves is never alone. Our faith is always connected to our works that flow from this faith. We see here that Abraham's obedience was another outworking of his faith, a faith in God's previous promises. Abraham's faith is displayed in his obedience to God's command. Now here, God promises to bless Abraham materially, and indeed he does, right? God does not always reward faith with monetary blessings, despite what we will hear on TV. In fact, quite often, the exact opposite is true. But this much we can be sure of. Our faith in God will always result in eternal and everlasting blessing, or so much more than what we can imagine here on earth. Just as Abraham received blessing through faith, we receive eternal blessing through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the final thing we see in our, in our passage, our blessing received. Our blessing received. Not only was Abraham promised a temporal earthly blessing, but God promised him that through his offspring, all of the earth shall be blessed. So look again to verse 18. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, places special emphasis on the singularity of the word offspring. In Galatians 3, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This promise God gives to Abraham is to bless the whole world through one descendant we see with greater clarity later on that this will come through the line of Judah. This will come through the line of David. 
Ultimately, we see Jesus come and fulfill this promise. Through Jesus, Abraham's greater son, we are blessed. Even though we have rebelled against our creator, he has sent us a promised savior with whom we are made right before God. Jesus is our substitute. We are blessed forever through him. Abraham's faith was displayed in his obedience to God's command. And Abraham's blessing becomes our blessing through our faith in God's promised son. I've recently been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. I I read these books when I was 10, and um, I I found them to be fun, fanciful stories of um, valiant children and evil queens and you know, fantasy creatures. Um, as a 10-year-old reading these stories, I didn't pick up on the Christian themes and allegory that just smacks you in the face. Probably I was just dumb. But <laughs> most of it is just really blatant and smacks you in the face. And, and now that I'm reading these as an adult, uh, I can finally understand why Laura's email address is Aslan Reigns. It's <laughs> awesome. Uh, anyway, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we see author C.S. Lewis lay out a clear and profound truth. One of the children in the story, Edmund, has betrayed his brothers and sisters. He uh, plotted with the white witch against them. He committed an act of treason. And according to the law of land, uh, a traitor's blood belongs to the white witch. She is to execute the boy. Aslan, the lion, the king of Narnia, approaches the evil witch. He offers himself as the substitute. She may kill him rather than the boy. The white witch agrees, and the glorious king is beaten, stripped, and a knife is plunged into his chest for the sins of another. There is no clearer picture of the death of Jesus on our behalf. Our king was beaten and stripped and sacrificed for the sins of the world, for the sins of you and of me. The wrath of God was applied to him as he died in our place as a substitute. Genesis 22, we see a clear foreshadow of this substitute as Abraham is acting by faith in the promises of God. Like Abraham, may our faith in this Christ be displayed in our obedience to God's commands. Let's pray. Father God, you are a faithful God. You have shown yourself to be faithful in the lives of your servants. We see in your word the fulfillment of your covenant promises. We see your mercy and grace in the life of Abraham, and we see this same mercy and grace in our lives today. Lord, I pray that we trust you with the entirety of our lives, that by faith we act according to what we believe. We love you, and we praise you. Amen.